Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Thank you so much for leading us in worship through song. It is a delight to have you with us today as we conclude one thing and start another. We have been in a series on commitments, and today our commitment to lead. Our commitment to lead. Some of you might not have noticed, others of you have. Our students are arriving back on campus, and it is a delight uh, and a wonderful thing. I want to just share a couple of things as we get started Uh, get started going on. I'm going to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 41 if you'd like. Isaiah chapter 41 as we uh, work our way along. This idea of leading, by the way, uh, by the end of this service, some of you have noticed, I saw a couple of our children at Children's Story that noticed the keys. These are a part of our symbolic Uh, acknowledgement of the power of leadership on our campus, our university campus, and all of our student leaders. So before we're all done, we're going to make a little moment of those keys, and we're going to spend a second to dedicate our student leaders here right together. I do want to point out again that our church business session in the 15th of the coming month in September We're going to spend time on our structure of leadership. Some of you, as we look at this word leadership, we think of the notion and the idea of leadership. It's possible that you're thinking, that's somebody else. That's not me. I love the data that I discovered suggesting that, in fact, every single normally functioning human being on this planet today will encounter at least four moments of significant leadership opportunity. So I'll just be honest with you, I'm not all that worried if somebody else labels you a leader. You've got opportunity today to be able to impact the lives of others. I'm not so sure we're all that good at keeping score on the subject of leadership. We're going to dig in to God's Word and spend a little bit of time. Again, I want to invite you to be here next week as we celebrate community and the building of our relationships. It's going to be a great weekend then, but right now we dive into God's Word and Isaiah chapter 41. I'm going to start in the ninth verse. If you don't mind, you can join me there in your Bible or on the screen Isaiah writes, I have called you back from the ends of the earth. These are the words of God and saying, you are my servant, for I've chosen you and will not throw you away. So don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. When the poor and the needy search for water, and there is none, and their tongues are parched from thirst, then I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will never abandon them. I will open up rivers for them on the high plateaus. I will give them fountains of water in the valleys. I will fill the desert with pools of water. Rivers fed by springs will flow across the parched ground. And today, you're called out by God as His servant to lead to make a difference 
in a way that the, the, the spotlight might shine on you or in a way that no one ever really quite points at and identifies but makes all the difference for God in some moment of opportunity. But as you walk in here, it's an acknowledgement I think we ought to make. We know that we come here from dry places. I don't know what your desert thing is. I don't know what it is that you thirst for, where you have a heartache, a disappointment, a frustration, a fear. Maybe it is even a victory from yesterday that creates pressure for today. But this God of ours promises, as He calls us as His servants, to serve us water. So, we're going to get into this subject together. Would you bow your head with me in a word of prayer, Lord God? Speak to us through your word, through your scriptures, through your stories, through your spirit's presence bathed on us. In Jesus we ask it. Amen. So in the uh, springtime of 2016, I had convinced my father to come live with us in Michigan. My mother had passed away earlier that year in January, and so I was in Pennsylvania helping him figure out what stuff was coming, what stuff was being thrown away, what stuff was going to be, be given away, and getting ready to sell his house. And in the meantime, I'd helped him purchase a new truck. I don't know, I'm going to show you a picture that is not of that specific truck, but it generally is. It was a 2016 Toyota Tacoma in quicksand, some of you know the color. Ah, yeah, just a delightful thing. It's something you need to know about my father. He's, I've seen him do this for years, both with myself and with my older brother, especially the two of us, and that when we get into a car of his, that he will flip us the keys and say, you drive. Uh, it's great. I like to drive. I get a little car sick sometimes otherwise, so this is great. This is great. And I remember him flipping me the open door of that, that new Toyota Tacoma saying, come on, Dave, let's go. We're going to throw away a bunch of trash that's in the bed of this truck. We're going to wander around to a few different little that You drive. All right. Which, by the way, if we don't go any further, there comes a moment when we who have authority, we who have had the opportunities, we who have Leadership history ought turn to some younger person and flip them the keys and say, hey, how about you drive? Let us not wait to a day when we can't even fill the passenger seat. So we jump into that Toyota Tacoma, and I have to adjust some things, some, the seat, and, you know, get myself all in there. And he didn't have to give me the key because there's a push button. Boom, we started, and rumble along, and boy, it feels good, and I was tempted to go off the road because there are features that I was interested in trying, but instead, we made our way around Blue Mountain Academy, a high school institution, a wide range of buildings, till we got to the dumpster we had agreed with the school administration, yeah, you can, you can throw some extra trash away there, and we offloaded a bunch of trash into that dumpster, and then we were circling around a building, and as we do, my dad says, hey, 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 just let me out here. I'd like to say hello to this friend of mine who I know is right inside this building. You go ahead. I was just going to go over to the administration building, park, go get some stuff, 
And so he jumped out, shut the door, and we drove. I drove along. He was going to be meeting me a little bit later, or I'd come back and pick him up. But as I pulled into the parking spot at the administration building and jumped out, having turned the ignition off, shut the door, you know, to lock this kind of vehicle, some of you know, at this point, you just, there's a portion of the door handle. You just touch that door handle, and you hear the, the locks all go, right? And I, I did that, and that didn't, I don't, I don't know what, you know, am I, you know, what I'm supposed to be, it's not, and I realize, I don't have the key. He's got the key. We jumped in together, he and I in the vehicle, and so we, I push the button and start, and we're driving, it's fine, the key's in there. He gets out, and I drive on without the key, and it is possible, by the way, that you can get somewhere in the journey thinking everything is well, and it's not. Because you don't have the key. And then you're stuck. Thankfully not that far away from where you went to visit a friend. I hoofed it over there to get him. I want to take you to just such a story. 2 Kings chapter 3. You might know it. You might not all that well. This is our home base for this morning as we kind of dig through what God is sharing with us. 2 Kings chapter 3. I don't know how well-versed you are in what's happening here. I'm going to back it up so we calibrate everybody. Some of us would like a little bit of a refresher for some of what's going on. But it's going to start the way many of these Old Testament stories do, with a bunch of names you don't hear called out in your classroom. Joram. Anybody Joram? Verse 1. Joram, son of Ahab. Maybe you have Jehoram, so maybe there is a Jehoram in your class son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat. Again, good name, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. So Joram, son of Ahab, becomes king in Israel, same time as Jehoshaphat is king in Judah. He did, that's Joram, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. By the way, Ahab was married to Jezebel, considered by many who readers of Scripture to be two of the most wicked people you can find. Power-hungry, misguided, misleading, and they have a son, Joram. So he's not as bad as mom and dad. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, just, just before we get too fond of Joram, nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam. Okay, here's another guy who was son of Nabat. Yeah, that clarifies it. Which he had caused Israel to commit, the sins of Jeroboam. He didn't turn away from them, Joram didn't. Now, Misha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel, thinking, okay, son, Junior, is now in charge, so probably I can try to get away with a little something. I don't know if he maybe just forgets. Maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't have the courage. Maybe he's not going to try to stop me from this situation. All wrong. Verse 6, so at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria, mobilized all Israel, and he also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Here's the message. The king of Moab, you remember, Misha, He's rebelled against me, won't give me the sheep, 
Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, says Jehoshaphat. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses, my stuff's your stuff. Let's do this. Well, but by what route, Jehoshaphat asked, by what route should we attack, he asked. And he's responded to by Joram, let's go through the desert of Edom. And so the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. Okay, is anybody a little dizzy? Not quite sure what's happening here. Some of us might need to kind of come up to speed on the fact that you have now God's people split into more than one grouping. Israel, that's what I thought they all were, right? And Judah. Let me take you back just a little bit to something. In the time of King David and King Solomon, all of Israel, that was all one thing. And you can see Judah and Israel in that dark blue. Hopefully you can see it. By the way, we're going to end up talking about Edom there down below. But what you can know is Samaria, which is up in Israel, or Jerusalem, the city of David, which is down in Judah, they're all a part of the unified, they're all together. Things are going great. And then a problem arises because Solomon dies and his son again, great name, Rehoboam, <laughs> ends up being ready to take the place of being the king in the place of Solomon for all of Israel. But here's what's going on. As he does this, the first or the 12th chapter of 1 Kings will tell you the story if you want to take a note and go check it out later. Here's what happens. He's got some advisors, some people who come to Rehoboam and say, hey, look, here's the deal. Uh, you, you know, your dad, your father, Solomon, he was really rough on us and was very exacting. And uh, I think people are at the breaking point. They went along with it because of all that he did, but I'm not so sure they're going to go along with it if you do the same thing. Why don't you relax a little bit? Rehoboam uh, goes and gets some of the elders and he gathers them together. He says, what do you think about this? I think it seems like he's keep, he keeps trolling for someone who will say, no, no, don't worry about it. But the elders there go, yeah, yeah, that, that does make sense. I can see their point. That's, this is important. And then Rehoboam goes to the, to the young men he has grown up with and says, well, what do you think? And they go, ah, I don't know. That doesn't sound quite right. In fact, here's what's going to happen if you do that. People are going to look at you and they're going to say, that's Junior. He's the mini Solomon, he's not as big a deal. I think you should actually go the opposite direction. Double down on this deal. Get more harsh. There you go. And so he does. He becomes more harsh. There is a point in 1 Kings chapter 12, you'll see it on the screen here, the 16th verse, when all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, this is Rehoboam, they answered the king and they said this, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? That's down in Judah, not the Israel portion of the tribes. To your tents, they say. To your tents, O Israel. Let's go back home. Look after your own house, O David. So, there becomes this split. And in the middle of this split, a rival, even of Solomon's, has arrived back. His name is Jeroboam. I know. Rehoboam, Jeroboam. Sounds like they're brothers. Nope. So Jeroboam arrives back, and here's the verse in, in verse 20. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. So here's what has happened. By the time we get to our story, 
Now you see where Israel had been, that whole section up top and the blue portion of Judah down below. Now they're split. And time goes by. And up in Israel, you have a lot of wicked kings. Those of you might, might not even know this, but generally speaking, when there's a good king and there's a bad king in God's people, usually the good king was down in Judah and the bad king was up in Israel. Israel tends to be the bad guy in a lot of the Old Testament stories after this division. In fact, that's where Ahab was the king. You remember the stories of Ahab and Elijah on Mount Carmel is, is calling down fire from God to an altar, Right? And he's in a weird kind of worship contest with a bunch of prophets from Baal. Do you remember that? Well, it's Ahab who has set up all of this. And there's something quite interesting about why this has happened. Because if you remember, again, in, third, in the third chapter of 2 Kings, verse 3, Nevertheless, he, Joram, clung to the sins of Rehoboam. What, the, what are the sins of Rehoboam? I want to take you to the 28th verse of that chapter we were reading where Rehoboam and Jeroboam split. Check this out. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. This is Jeroboam in the north, in Israel. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel. Here's what's happening. You know, all of the festivals, all of the religious practices, they would often be calling people to come to Jerusalem. But what has happened is the king has realized, King Jeroboam, if they keep going down to Jerusalem and worshiping there, people are going to start saying, wait, wait, why are we split apart? Why are we split apart? I think it's a fascinating possibility that when people worship well together, it dissolves many of our differences. No, 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 no. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to make a whole new religion if I need to. A golden calf thing. That sounds great. I'll make two of them. We'll park them in some cities that are closer by. Worship those. This is what we're going to do. It's a time saver, everybody. Great news. Don't go down to Jerusalem. Worship an alternate God. Because my worry is if you go to worship the true God, you will start to drift away from your allegiance to me. And this is one massive challenge and problem we see over and over with individuals who step into leadership. And by the way, it can happen with an eighth grade president of a class. They get a little taste. I get a little texture of the power. Oh, I want more of that. I got to protect that. Somebody said, what? Okay. This thing's going to turn out to be a problem. People will wander away over there. This thing's going to happen over there. I got to squash that. I got to stop that because I got to protect myself. You're going to notice as the story goes on, Joram seems to try to position himself as if he's on some godly endeavor, but he has long ago adopted an approach where God is something that hangs from his rearview mirror as a good luck charm on occasion, and even if he doesn't need that one, he'll pick a different one because it's about him. Be concerned when you are near or following or associated with a leader who keeps pointing everyone to himself, wants the credit, shuffles off the blame. Okay, so 
Here's what we got. We're getting rolling now. Here's what we have. We have Israel up top. We have Judah down below. And in fact, up on the top is where Joram is king. Joram's the guy who's going to want to say, look, the Moab down there, Misha, he's not paying what he needs to pay. He's one of the vassals that is under my thumb. We're going to get this stuff. But he asks Judah, if he will partner in Jehoshaphat, will partner their armies together. No discussion of splitting any kind of tribute. Not clear on how this is all supposed to go. And in fact, Jehoshaphat says, hey look, your people, my people. My things, your things. Let's do this. I want to say to you, our desire for love and acceptance can sometimes trick us into aligning ourselves with people we have no business aligning ourselves with. Ah, uh, that young man, that young woman, think you've found the right one, but she's not quite there in her spiritual commitments. But if she stays with you long enough, yeah, it'll work. We'll make this thing happen. She thinks she can convert him, and he plays along for a while to look just right, but there is a, an alliance that is happening of people who do not agree, who do not share all the right things. Isn't it fascinating? You see this in politics, in business, in church. Isn't it fascinating that sometimes, just because of one certain something, we will align ourselves with somebody who violates so much of who we really want to be? Slow it down. Think it through. It might also interest you to know that Edom is made up of the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. If that's not enough for this story, which, by the way, what's going to happen is Joram's going to sweep down to pick up Joshua, Jehoshaphat and his troops, and then he's going to swing through Edom because, by the way, the Edomites are under his thumb also. They don't really have a choice when he says, we're going to war, they're coming. And then they're going to swing through the desert of Edom toward Moab, which, if you're not familiar, are the descendants of Lot. Everybody at war and arguing in this story, they're all related. Have you noticed? One of the things we do best is fight with ourselves. Oh my goodness, the energy we will deploy to squash our friend the enemy. How much of God's resources are spent fighting within our own family? Oh, there isn't a bit of this story that couldn't be different, except for the kinds of arguments we tend to get into every day. All right, so we're ready. We're rolling now. Fast verse 9. So the king of Israel set out. King of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, the descendants of Esau. And after a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. They're marching along. The army's getting bigger. The army's getting bigger. They have resourced themselves, and now they're heading through the desert. And it's at that point that the Bible uses this language. They go on a roundabout seven-day journey. The 
the core of the Hebrew there is used also in Exodus to talk about the children of Israel who will end up wandering for 40 years. It's a without God situation. And they seem a little lost, and they have wildly uh, misunderstood their resources. They have been thirsting now to the point people are ready to quit, back up, and go home, and they're nearing the enemy too. So they're in deep trouble. They're in deep trouble. And I just want to say to you, some of us in this room are in deep trouble. Some of us in this room, we have set out on some journey. It could be because the major you set out on, you were really clear on. Now it's all murky and muddy, and you're starting to lose it just a little bit, and you need some refreshing sense of hope that you're on the right track. Somebody in here is in a marriage that you feel the moisture drain away from any kind of sustenance. You're, you need some refreshment. This, this, this is trouble. Some of us are working in jobs that are as dry as the desert sand. And we're not going to make it much longer. Or even if we do, it'll only be because everything else about our lives suffer. I don't know what you've walked in here with. Some of us have spiritual dry death. And we need, desperately need some water. Well, verse 10, about that time, Joram, the king of Israel, he's had enough. What? He calls out. What? Has the Lord, that's the word Yahweh, has Yahweh called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? You ever notice somebody who does that? They have this plan, they get everybody going in a certain direction, then it starts to fall apart, and they start to blame the plan on somebody else. And you're thinking, wait, I was in the room. That was, that was you. What are you doing, Lord? The one I'm talking to right now, I'm not talking about the golden calves anymore. Yahweh, what's going on? And he's using the right spiritual language, but it's hollow. What's going on here? Jehoshaphat asked him, well, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? I think it is an amazing promise. No matter how you got here, you may know absolutely full well recently you've been on a journey that is called for you to let go of your allegiance to God. Yeah, it's very easy to be dressed in Sabbath suits and be on a journey away from God. But there's power in this story. It doesn't matter how far you've gotten. It could be to your wit's end on a journey of abandoning God. It is always a good day to ask. I wonder what God has to say. And Jehoshaphat says, is there no prophet? We should, we should I, you know, I'm starting to rethink my alignment with you, Joram, just to be honest with you. This is a weird little trip we're on. And by the way, I've had a lot of kind of dry time to think about, you know, your whole deal here, and I'm, I'm not even sure about you, uh, but okay, so how about we seek a prophet? Is there a prophet anywhere? Interesting, neither of these two kings knows there's a prophet. And in steps a powerful moment as we consider the keys hanging on these lanyards as we consider the metaphor of the key in this world and in this life. Yeah, the president, the person who holds the position, 
they often, we see them as being the key people. But there will come a moment when you or me, in a nameless incident, have the key. So, in the middle of the 11th verse, an officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, by the way, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Now, just time out for a second. Remember, Elijah was the one when Ahab was the king calling down fire onto the altars and ends up slaughtering, slaying all the prophets of Baal. He will also, shortly after that, end up in a cave on the floor in a fetal position just crying... I'm the only one. I'm the only one. And I don't know if you've been in a situation with your friend groups where you've felt like you're the only one who really has any interest in God, but God would whisper into your ears, hey, 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 not so fast there, Junior. I've got my people. I've got someone. I've got someone. I've got my people. He will say to Elijah, I have 7,000 faithful to me that you know nothing about. I wonder if one of them is an officer in the military, or maybe he's just coming up. He's a private, barely anywhere yet, and he is serving in the military of Israel, the military of Ahab. But he is a follower of the true Yahweh God, not a golden calf worshiper. I wonder about that because in the next generation, he's going to step forward in this moment as an officer say, I know, I know. And in fact, I hope I don't bother you, Joram, when I mention Elijah because I know you sat and listened to the stories from your parents about their irritation with Elijah. But someone who served him washed his hands. He is, he is near here, Elisha, and he is a prophet. We should go there. I'm just going to suggest to you, if that was the only moment of influence for that individual whom we do not know their name, how would we calculate the impact? For everything in this story shifts on that fulcrum. You may have many fewer moments of influence than the person sitting to your right or to your left. That does not mean yours doesn't change everything. So we step into this story, step into the opportunity, into this situation, and Jehoshaphat said, well, the word of the Lord then sounds like is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom, they went down to him. Elisha meets them in verse 13, says to the king of Israel, this is Joram, this is the, you know, again, Elisha has been the follower of Elijah. He knows all the stories too. Joram, he knows about Ahab, he knows about Jezebel, he knows about all this stuff, he knows about the golden calves, he knows it all. Elisha says, you know what, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, well, let's back up to 13, Elisha says to the king of Israel, why do you want to involve me in your little journey, your trip out in the wilderness, your seven days worth of thirst? Why do you want to involve me in this? Why don't you go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother there, Joram? It's a little zesty. No, says the king of Israel, because it was Yahweh who called us three kings together. Again, wait. I was in the room for that conversation. It was you, Joram. It was Yahweh. It was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Is that what you're saying? And Elisha says, well, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, you just need to know something. 
if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat the king, if I didn't know he cares about whatever his mistakes are, he cares about following the true Yahweh God, if I didn't know that, I wouldn't have much to do with you. This is what I'm about to do. It has nothing to do with you, Joram. It has to do with the fact that there is a faithful follower among your band of three. So bring me a harpist. Kind of a strange, kind of resulting thing. Okay, so, all right, I'm, I'm going to help you here. Bring me a harpist. We've read in other stories, it's kind of an odd thought, but that these, these armies would often travel with musicians. Sometimes they would put them at the front of the army. You remember that story. But they've got a harpist. They've got plenty. And they bring out a harpist to play as Elisha seeks God's guidance in this scenario and in this situation. And by the way, what a, what a great moment to pause and reflect. Some of us are not as keenly aware that God has through time and through history used music and musicians to speak His Word and to give His presence in our lives. And He's used all sorts of it. He's used banging, clanging, use harps and lyres and stuff that would be discordant to me. And in this situation, as prophets would do, a harpist begins to play, and Elisha seeks God. And in a little bit, he'll come back with some words. We find it there in verse 16. He says this, I'll show on the screen. For this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain. This is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches. What I want you to do is dig ditches. Some of you have a version that might say that this valley is going to be filled with water. Others of you have the notion of digging ditches. Depending on your translation, if you go back to the Hebrew, there's a definite idea of digging trenches through the sand. Think about what he's saying, because the next part of this will say, for this is what the Lord says, you will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water. So what I want you to do is the rest of the day, you can barely walk. You're struggling with your energy. The sun is beating down upon you, I want you to get shovels, and I want you to go out into the desert and start to dig trenches, dig ditches, many, many, many ditches in the middle of the beating down sunshine. That's what I want you to do. You, so, <clears throat> that doesn't seem like a good plan. Well, you know what else? Rain is coming, and it will fill those ditches. You're not going to see it. You're not going to hear it. You're going to have to go by faith. You know, that's the truth of it, isn't it? That very often, the thing we need most, God has to give, but He asks first that I make some gesture, some moment of faith. He'll say to a little woman, go, gather up all the pots you can. Can you imagine as they are all filled and the oil keeps flowing and they begin to wonder, should we have gotten more? Because God would have kept it coming. Did we just barely have enough ditches to be able to get water for our troops and the horse? We should have dug more. A guy named Naaman is told, hey, look, yeah, I can heal you. God says through a servant, I can heal you. Go down to the muddy riverbank that's going to test your courage and your haughty pride and go and dip all the way under 
all the way under, seven times. And you know what? You go down the first time and come back up, and you're not going to be one bit healed. And the third and the fourth and the fifth, that sixth time, you're going to be not one bit healed. And as you dig the trenches, you dig the trenches, and you're barely able to keep going. You're about to pass out. It's going to be dry. It's going to be dry. You're not even going to see the rain. But if you don't dig the ditches, the rain's going to come and it's going to wash right through here and you're going to have nothing. If you don't dip seven times, that brand new skin I have for you, it's not there. If you don't bring enough pots, I, I can't help you. I don't know what journey you've been on. I see a lot of my young friends here who come here today knowing we're going to dedicate you in your leadership. We're going to take a key and we're going to flip it to you and say, hey, let me slide to the passenger seat. I need you to lead, Mark. Maybe you take that little moment and you think of this key and you say to yourself, you know what, there's going to be some moment, some door. Maybe you're a quiet young lady or young man and you're going to take that key and you're going to say, nobody's even going to hardly notice when I open the door because they're not watching me, but there's somebody, some student, some parent, some staff member, a fellow church member. When you open that door, it changes everything for them. And you'll have the opportunity. Or maybe... Maybe for you the metaphor is to recall and remember. I'm on a journey here, and I may be having all kinds of great plans, but if God is not in it, I'm driving a car without a key. I need to pause. I need to stop. I need to step out. And even if it is because I've gotten desperate and thirsty, and I need to go to God and say, I'm ready. I'm ready to hear your voice. Come on me, please. Let me sit aside with a great song and listen and pray. Be quiet for a minute and stop my shuddering from not having enough water here. And I think if you lean close, you will hear the Spirit of God say to you, ah, I've got the water you need. Your claiming of my gift will be matched only by the ability and the willingness to dig the ditches. You dig the ditches and it's going to come. In fact, that next thing that is said in the 18th verse, for this is an easy thing for me. I don't know what struggle or difficulty or challenge you have now or the one you can't imagine that's going to come upon you in another month or two. But this God of ours says, the rain you need, you're not even going to feel it. You're not going to see it. You're not going to hear it. But I've got it coming. This is an easy thing for me. That thing that's going to shock you and rock you off your foundation, that's an easy thing for me. I've got you. But you've got to dig a ditch to receive it. You've got to open your hands and let go of something to receive it. You need to be willing to go under the water in the muddy, muddy water to receive it. The next morning, the troops having dug ditches and just, I mean, they're, uh, probably some were fainting and they're just hanging on for dear life at this point. And then, as they come out, 
About the time of the morning sacrifice, come out and look, and they're seeing the rushing of water from the hillsides of Edom. And it's filling the trenches. I don't know how it got there. I don't know if there's a spring that erupted. I don't know if it rained. I think the fact that the prophet says you're not going to hear the rain, you're not going to hear the wind, you're not going to feel it, that almost makes it seem to me like he's saying it's going to rain and you won't even know where. But it's going to funnel right down here. Maybe even as the prophet Elisha is challenging the people of God, maybe at that moment the rain of salvation begins to fall. Could it be that the thing you need most, God has already supplied? It's already rushing downhill toward your life. The only question is, will you have a ditch ready to receive it? By the end of that particular day, not only are they all well served and their thirst quenched, all their animals, all the people. But as the Moabites come down, because they know all these people are assembled, I don't know if they've got scouts that know they're in some deep trouble. And in fact, they're all thirsty and we're going to have a better and easier time. But they come down the valley toward where they are encamped in this desert. And because the sun is at their back, splashing across these pools of water, they look on and the reflection seems to them as the color of blood. And they know Israel, and they know Judah, and they're thinking, yeah, that makes sense that they would just fight each other. They think, in fact, that what has happened is that these three kings have turned on one another and fought each other, and so, yeah, why not? Let's go for it. And down into the valley, they, they stroll, ready to just claim the victory. But in that manner of attack, they are completely overwhelmed. And so in this one moment, not only does God quench their thirst, but he wins the bigger battle they couldn't even name in front of him because the thirst was too big. So yeah, I think God's got you in this moment, but he's got you in eternity. He's got you in the big picture, not just the small one. So here's how we're going to do this. As we close this time, we're going to invite a group of individuals, our pastors, our chaplains, the president of our university. We've got the, one of the vice presidents of our university. Our, I think Dennis Negron, I saw you here too. Student life, a variety of us. We're going to come up here and we're going to gather some of these keys and we're going to make our way close to the aisles. As they come up and start to assemble, I'm going to move this way over here. Because what I want to do now is I would like our church, our family, to see our student leaders, to have the opportunity to pray for and pray over our student leaders as we give them symbolically a key. Make sure we've got some over here on this side too. Plenty of room. We've got three aisles. We'll cover them all. And as we get a little bit out of the way, because uh, there's going to be a flood, maybe, maybe the rain we needed, you're going to watch come rushing onto this stage. Maybe it is in giving us these leaders that God will quench our thirst and provide for our needs. So I'd like to invite our campus ministries leaders. Would you come right on up and come up on the stage? Just keep coming on up, our campus ministries leaders. I want to invite our RAs, our student residence assistants and those who work in our dormitories. Would you come up too? Just find your way on up. We have student association officers. Would you just come right on up and fill in the gaps as you keep coming? We have mentors that are here to mentor our freshmen. If you don't mind, just keep coming on up. 
We have club leaders from, yeah, you just come all the way up on stage. We're not going to hand those out yet. You come right up on stage. We want everybody to see and pray over. We'll give those keys after you have come on up here. We have our club leaders for Black Christian Union, for our Asian club, for our Latin American club, and for some other of our student organizations. You just come right on up. Find your way up here among us as far as you can, as much as you can. And they keep coming. I don't know, some of them maybe even from the, from the balcony. You just keep, find your way around here. Just find your way right around here. There's a young leader. Church, God is providing. And there are some in our pews, students, who are going to make the difference in the moment. They are the key. They don't have a position of leadership like some of these do, but they're going to be stepping into that moment. Students, as you look out on this family, know this. You sometimes don't have any idea what you're looking at. I want to suggest to you there are warriors in these pews who will pray for you, who will walk with you, who will listen, assist, encourage you, and be your home for you. And the moment when you need the water, it might be that they're the ones that God uses to have it rush across the foothills and into your life. If you'd like to just say to these students, I want in on that. If you have a need, I would like to know it. If you just need me to pray for you, I'm in for that. If you need a home to go to, to have a little bit of a meal, or just to let me know how it's going, yeah, I'd like to be a part of your success as a leader this year. Would you just raise your hand and wave it to these, our young friends? Just go ahead, right? wave it, yeah. Yeah, some of you are pretty bashful about that, but I saw some motion over there. Well, we're going to pray over you. And then as you leave, you just go down. We're going to give you each a key. They're fairly different, one from another, just like you are from each other. And there's a unique door that you have, a unique moment that will occur, something God is calling you to that can't be done by anybody else, to be you. I love the Dr. Seuss line, right? One thing is true. It's truer than true. There's no one. That's youer than you. God gave you that uniqueness and that individuality. And there's going to come a moment that only you have the key for. So as you take this key, it's a little simple gesture. You might hang it on your door frame. You might tuck it around in a corner, put it in a... If you have a place that you pray, I recommend you put it there for a while to pray over God's opportunities in your life. So would you bow with me as we pray a blessing on these young leaders and more. Lord God, we love you. We are just filled with enthusiasm and it gives us energy to see these young warriors stepping up, stepping out. They're going to be tested. They're going to be tried. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be discouragement. There's going to be way too much on some of their plates. There are going to be things that they don't know what to do with. Sure. 
Lord, in that moment that they feel like they're wandering for the seventh day without water, have them turn to you, Lord God. Would you please breathe life and use us to rush water of sustenance and encouragement into their lives. May they daily pray over the opportunities they have to influence our world, our campus, sure, our dormitories, yes. This room on a Vesper's night, the gymnasium for some activity, yeah, yeah. But Lord God, the world over needs to know you. So disturb them for more than what their job description may say to bring glory to your kingdom so that you can come and save us forever. So we place these young lives in your hands and we commit to praying daily over them. We are yours today. In the name of the one who sends the water, the name of the one who calls us out by name and calls us friend and leader. In Jesus, we praise you. Bless these leaders. Amen. Amen.